3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers, and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nations. We recognize their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis, and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7 a.m. to late 30 a.m. Good morning, and you're listening to Thursday Breakfast on 3CR, 8.55 a.m. Good morning, Priya, and good morning, Carly. Good Good morning. morning. It is the 17th of December, listeners. Um, Damn, we're at the end of the year. This is our last show for the year. Yeah, we only just got back in the studio, and now uh, we're going to be leaving you for a couple of weeks, but not before we bring you some... Very timely topical content, um, as per usual. Although before I jump into that, I just had an important update. Uh, So for people who've been following what's going on at uh, the Mantra Hotel in Preston, where uh, refugees and asylum seekers have been incarcerated, basically, by uh, the state since they came through via the Medivac legislation, um, there's now been new information this week that Border Force intends to transport them to a different uh, location. So instead of releasing them into the community as per uh, their asks and as per you know the community's asks, um, there's been a decision to transfer them to uh, yeah a more secure facility, basically somewhere uh, where you know we won't even be able to have the level of contact that we had with them at Mantra, where we could at least wave to people through the windows and, and speak with them in that way. So. Um, Basically, if you can get down to the Mantra Hotel in Preston to just keep up a presence there, um, you know, keep up the public scrutiny, provide solidarity to the to the men that are detained there, please, please head down. This is urgent. This is an emergency. Um, if you can spare a couple of hours, please, any time of the day or night helps. Yeah. Definitely try and get down there if you can, folks. Um, and also wanted to give a plug for the IRL InfoShop Mutual Aid Fund. So IRL has been delivering hampers uh, and has been in solidarity with Southeast Mutual Aid Group and the Blackfellow Mutual Aid Group. Um, so I've been delivering up to 70 hampers a week to folks who um, are in need all across NAM. And yeah, at this time of year, IRL is also creating these beautiful, lovely, handmade, um, lot of handmade gifts in these hampers. And IRL, yeah, would really appreciate some more funds. So if you can donate to IRL Info Shop, um, that BSB number is six three three zero zero zero. Account number is one six three eight four six zero zero nine, and you can also just head along to IRL InfoShop at Instagram, uh, Facebook, or you can email irlinfoshop at gmail dot com. One last quick plug is uh, for Warren of Canuck. If you can keep boosting, keep uh, donating, uh, you can find uh, more information. And this is the Land Back Sovereignty Initiative, of course, that we spoke with Arika Walu on the show about a couple of weeks ago. So you can find information at at Wern, W-U-U-R-N of K-A-N-A-K. At, uh, on Instagram. And, um, yeah, there's donation details there, either directly or via the GoFundMe. Um, so shall we uh, quickly jump into the rundown before we head on to the news? 
Yes, certainly. Um, got a pretty packed show again. <laughs> um, so, firstly. Um, so, yeah, first up, I'm going to be speaking with Kristen O'Connell, who's a spokesperson for the Australian Unemployed Workers Union, uh, who I, I guess we, Kristen and I, have decided quite ambitiously are going to try and give us a rundown of the big changes in social security policy in Australia in 2020. Um, and then we'll hear uh, an interview that our fabulous uh, producer, Rosie, uh, conducted last night with uh, two, two people. So, Moshkan Morasefidzadeh, well, I pronounce that very badly, and Nicole Kirby. Um, and both of them produced The Wait, which is a new five-part narrative podcast series telling the story of, of the refugees stranded in Indonesia as a result of Australia's border crackdown. Oh, and then Shakira Hussain will join us, and she is a writer and researcher based at the University of Melbourne. Uh, and she's the author of From Victims to Suspect, Muslim Women Since 9-11. And she'll join us to discuss two of her recent articles, one in the Saturday paper and one uh, which uh, talks about the Christchurch ma massacre, an Australian crime, and the other is an article published on ecofascism and disability, published for the Other Film Festival. And finally, we'll be joined again by Joshua Badge, who's a queer writer and philosopher living on Wurundjeri land in Melbourne, who joins us to discuss and contextualize the most recent spate of queer and transphobic articles in Australian media. Joshua's writing has featured in places like Mention, Overland, The Guardian, and Junkie. They previously lectured at Deakin University and volunteer with Thorn Harbor Health and the Renters and Housing Union. All right, now we're going to go to Kate Kelly with the news. Good morning. Good morning. I'm Kate Kelly, and here are the top stories on 3CR this Thursday. So first up this morning, we have um, the fact that Australia could transition away from the production and consumption of fossil fuels without a single force redundancy, a new and very exciting report has suggested. So it comes as Chinese state media appeared to confirm a ban on Australian coal this week. The Australian Institute Centre for Future Work has found Australia could phase out coal, oil and gas industries without mass layoffs. The report found that around 133,000 people were employed in the fossil fuel jobs last year, which make up about 1% of Australia, Australia's total jobs, and approximately 50,000 of those are in the coal industry. The Centre for Future Work director, Jim Stanford, who wrote the report, said that the government could manage the transition by investing in incentives for early retirement and regional diversification over just a 20-year period. And because the majority of, of the workforce is at an age where they would be retiring within 20 years, we would only need to transition about a few jobs, um, roughly around 3,000, he said. They could be, his argument is that he, they could be transitioned easily with incentives like caps on um, salaries. And the Australian Workers' Union has moved to close the industrial loophole that allows farms to pay vulnerable workers less than minimum wage this week. So the union has applied to the Fair Work Commission to amend the horticultural award to guarantee that every worker on every farm in the country is entitled to take home the minimum casual rate of pay, which is $24.80 per hour. 
Currently, farms can dodge this minimum rate through piecework arrangements under which workers are paid depending on the quality of fruit picked or vegetables harvested. The manipulation of this system has led to widespread incidences of workers getting paid as little as $3 per hour. Under AWU's proposed amendment, piecework arrangements would still be permitted, but every worker would be guaranteed award rate as a floor. And lastly, following their recent failed attempt to ban um, to ban police from marching in the annual Sydney, Sydney Gay and Lesbian Mardi Gras Parade, the people behind Pride in Protest have scheduled a march down Oxford Street on the same day as the annual parade next year. So what's going to be happening is the official Mardi Gras parade has been actually been moved to the Sydney Cricket Ground where the, um, I guess there can be a crowd of like 46,000 because of COVID-19 restrictions. So as that's happening, there'll be a protest on Oxford Street which is going to be billed as the Mardi Gras March and the organisers have vowed to take the event back to its roots. New South Wales community advocates for prisoners support um, support the march and have said they hope it is a fight against transphobia and the hurtful religious freedoms bill. In response, the official Mardi Gras organisation has said that while they respect Pride in Protest, the right to protest, they would have preferred it if the organisers of the march had decided to hold the event on another day. And that's it for Thursday's headlines. Have a great show, guys. Thank you so much, Kate. And that's our last kind of live show. So, yeah, I guess we'll be back next year and we'll speak to you next year. Yeah, yeah. See you next year. Thanks, Kate. Thanks. And now we're going to go into a new track by Jerome Farah. This one is Vibrate. Take it 
girls and leave Cause I do not be calling you ever calling on my line You've been out having a ball, I've been here balling my eyes out Now you all alone and you've been missing all my vibe I hope that I'm ready, ready, realize Anybody vibrate Anybody And just then we heard Vibrate by Jerome Farah. The family's like, where is the dead body? We didn't receive it. And he's like, the dead body is deported back to Indonesia. This is, these are bad stuff as you're laughing because these are ordinary. Like, this is our life now. It's so normal now. I'm Oshkan Mairakizadeh. I'm Nicole Kirby. This is The Wait. A podcast series that uncovers how Australia is pushing its borders out. And brings you into the lives of refugees like me who are caught on the borderline in Indonesia. You're battling your demons here. Yeah. Like a box ring. <laughs> it's like boxing for him. <laughs> Nicole, please arrest all of us. Please report this to everyone that you can. So many people come to have a news from us. But they are, all of them is coming in here, but there nothing happening with us. Yeah, it's difficult, right? So why are you guys coming in here? To keep your voice to the world, so people outside can hear your voice. Oh, is that good? Yes, we hope that something will happen. Okay. From The Guardian Australia and supported by the Walkley Foundation, The Wait is a five-part narrative podcast, two years in the making. Subscribe to The Wait on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And tell your friends. So, as we just heard, The Wait is a new five-part narrative podcast series telling the story of the refugees stranded in Indonesia as a result of Australia's border crackdown. So, we heard there from Mojgan Morafisade, who is the co-host and a reporter on The Wait. And Mojgan is also a human rights advocate, public speaker, and refugee law paralegal with a bachelor's degree in English teaching and translation. She is the co-founder of the Refugees and Asylum Seekers Information Centre, which coordinates eye and dental care clinics, monthly hygiene and food packages, a mental health program, and connects people with legal aid inquiries. And Nicole Kirby is a writer, producer, and co-host of The Wait. She's an audio producer and oral historian, and she lived in Jakarta in 2016 and 2017, working on the regional radio current affairs program, Asia Calling. And we'll just listen to the interview that Rosie Isaacs, our fabulous, fabulous producer, did with them yesterday. 
Hi, Mojgan and Nicole. Thank you so much for joining us on 3CR Thursday Breakfast this morning. And just to begin, could I ask you each to introduce yourselves and talk a little bit about the work you do? Mojgan, would you like to go first? Hi, thank you for having us. Um, I'm Mojgan Mayafizadeh. I'm a refugee living in Indonesia for the past seven and a half years. And I run an NGO here for refugees providing services. Uh, yeah, thanks so much for having us. It's really nice to join you on my favourite radio station in the world, Gracia. Um, um, uh, uh, I'm the producer and co-host of the podcast series The Wait, and Mojgan's the other co-host. It's a five-part podcast series that investigates the situation for refugees and asylum seekers who are stuck in Indonesia. Well, Mojgan's one of those asylum seekers. And uh, it also looks at the role that Australia plays in keeping those refugees and asylum seekers stranded in Indonesia. Australia plays a really active role in that, and that's what we explore in the podcast. With Mojgan and I have been working on the wait for the past two years, and it just launched uh, about two months ago. Great. Thank you so much. So, um, listeners... From next week, over our summer programming, Thursday Breakfast listeners will actually be able to listen to all five episodes of the podcast, The Wait, um, co-hosted by Mojgan and Nicole. So, Mojgan, could you just tell us um, a little bit about the title of the podcast? It's called The Wait, and it does refer to the experience of refugees in Indonesia waiting for their claims to be processed by the UN and waiting for resettlement. Um, so, could you maybe tell us a bit about this title and this state of waiting and how it impacts their lives and also the mental health of refugees in Indonesia? Well, the title really speaks, uh, you know, throughout the whole series and uh, you can you can hear this in actually all of the interviews that we, have, we were having with people that this element of waiting is very much alive and every single day we are carrying this with us. For everything, we have to just wait and wait and wait. And I think it pictures the uncertainty that we go through every day as well, so well, um, because for absolutely anything we think about, we need to just wait. And there's no other solution to it. And it shows that things are really out of our control and there's nothing that we can decide on, we can plan for. And our life is just a big, fat wait. And that's what it is. Nicole came up with this title, and I instantly loved it because it's how I feel. My life is a, it's just a long, long way that is never ending, and it's the same with every other refugee. So I thought that this demonstrates um, that what we go through on a day-to-day basis really well. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much. And you just touched on there, Mojgan, a little bit about um, you and Nicole working together. So um, could you tell us a little bit about how the podcast came about, how you started working together. So Nicole and I know each other for a bit over three years now, right? And uh, I, I met Nicole in Jakarta when she was doing um, her first podcast on us, which was a 30-minute a, a program for ABC, which was great. So uh, we did that together, but after that, we stayed in touch, and um, I kept on talking to her about all of my stories and, you know, what I've been through. And, you know, it's, honestly, it's hard to make friends when you are a refugee and there are not many people who can understand you, you know, and understand your situation. So Nicole was one person who was willing to listen to me all the time and really care about this whole thing. So I just kept on talking to her 
like sometimes every day I would call her crying, talking about something, or I was excited about something, talking to her, or talking about the work of my organization and everything. So throughout all these years um, of us talking about this situation, and Nicole was really interested too, um, to, you know, hear about all the different things, um, we decided that we should share these stories, and these stories shouldn't be just stay with us. And that's how the podcast came about. In the podcast, you also uh, discuss a lot of the bureaucracy and organizations that work with and sometimes house refugees in Indonesia, like the uh, International Organization for Migration, or IOM. Um, but I think the functioning of these organizations and what they actually do is something that people living in so-called Australia know almost nothing about. So could you talk a little bit about the complexities of these organizations, how they're linked to organizations like the UN, also to the Indonesian government and also to the Australian government through funding arrangements? Maybe, Nicole, you can answer that one. Mm. Yeah, I think a lot of Australians don't understand that Australia's border policy not only reaches into Manus and Nauru, but it continues to reach into Indonesia. We don't realise that because the ways in which that is administered isn't, uh, is quite opaque, so the money trail is harder to pin down. Um, over the years, Australia has had, over the last 20 years, Australia has had an an agreement with Indonesia and the International Organisation for Migration um, to stop asylum seekers and refugees continuing to Australia. So that's involved boat turnbacks, it's involved intercepting refugees and asylum seekers on land in Indonesia to stop them getting to Australia, and at the moment it involves it continue and it involves also Australia providing funding to maintain immigration detention centres in Indonesia, and that meant that for 20 years, refugees and asylum seekers were systematically locked up in immigration detention centres in Indonesia. Australia provides a lot of that money through the International Organisation for Migration. That's something we discuss in the podcast. Um, so it funds the International Organisation for Migration, with, which operates all around the world. It's an intergovernmental body. It um, doesn't necessarily have a human uh, humanitarian mandate like the UNHCR does. Um, so its role isn't necessarily to care for refugees, um, but it's to like facilitate migration around the world. And essentially, if Australia is providing that funding, international the International Organisation for Migration does a lot of what Australia asks it to do. Um, in this case, at the moment, the International Organisation for Migration is accommodating around 8,000 refugees and asylum seekers in shelters spread across the Indonesian archipelago um, and those shelters I visit and we both visit throughout the course of recording this podcast series. Um, and what I can say after visiting those shelters is that refugees and asylum seekers are living in really abysmal conditions for the long term. Children are living with very little or no education. Uh, a lot of people are living with untreated medical and health care needs. Um, and we've seen really a number, a series of suicides occur within those um, shelters, the most recent one being last week, uh, actually. Um, a Afghan refugee committed suicide after being in Indonesia for around seven years. Um, so it's a strategy, I think, that is employed to stop refugees and asylum seekers coming through Indonesia and continuing to, to Australia. Uh, and it's, it's something that has escaped our attention 
And I think it is something that Australians certainly need to be looking at if we're considering the ways in which our um, border policies are being exerted. You know, it's kind of interesting that refugees and asylum seekers have dropped off the agenda in a big way compared to, you know, the kind of panic and how much we were hearing a number of years ago. Um, but in reality, we, I think we have to ask what's happened to the issue. It's, it's not that it's actually disappeared. It's just that uh, we're not seeing what's going on. And, yeah, Mojgan was able to kind of open my eyes to this. And as I continue digging, um, this is some of what I found out. And, and you'll hear more about it throughout the course of the series. It, it's quite a complex situation, and we, we try and unpack it through the series as best we can. Absolutely, and you described that as well in the introduction to the podcast. Each episode you talk about Australia pushing its borders out, and that I think that kind of description of what's happening is really important for people here to recognise. It's not, you know, people, people just because people aren't arriving on our shore doesn't mean that people aren't stuck somewhere. They're actually stuck wherever, yeah, that border gets pushed to. Mojgan, did you want to elaborate at all on the kind of Australian government's refugee policy and how that does affect the lives of refugees awaiting resettlement in Indonesia? Well, I think Nicole just explained um, a lot of it, but uh, the main thing has been that um, Australia is stopping um, refugees, you know, reaching from reaching their borders by themselves or through uh, UNHCR has uh, been having a really bad impact here in Indonesia, although that they are uh, trying to solve some of the solution by funding uh, the International Organization for Migration, but I don't think that solved the problem at all, you know. Um, if anything, uh, it made the rates longer and longer here, and it impacted the mental health of the refugees in a really bad way. And um, unfortunately, I feel like uh, some other resettlement com- uh, countries have also kind of copied these policies and reduced the number of resettlement that were happening from Indonesia uh, comparing to six, seven years ago. Now, not much resettlement at all is happening from Indonesia, and that's really bad, and it also contributes to, you know, worsening the mental health situation of the refugees. And I think, um, yeah, I think that they're just copying these policies off of each other and pushing their borders out on neighboring countries or developing countries, and that is not solving the solution at all. It's just pushing it away. Absolutely. Um, in the podcast, you also speak about a number – well, you speak to many refugees and have many different voices in the podcast, but specifically refugees who are organizing within their own communities to create opportunities for themselves and for their families, such as the Refugee Learning Centres. Could you just tell us a little bit, a bit about one or two of these initiatives and talk a bit about the importance of listeners hearing, you know, these stories of like the creativity and ingenuity of refugees living in Indonesia? Refugees were trying to, you know, create this sense of community among themselves because the initial years that I was here, it was just getting in and out of detentions all the time and we weren't really living, you know, as a community. We weren't really knowing where are the areas that other refugees live. But uh, as time went on and uh, detentions kind of slowed down, you know, locking up refugees, then uh, we, were, we were on our own. In, in and out of Jakarta, you know, and surrounding areas. So some refugees came together and decided to start really small learning groups and they, they went on from there, you know, deciding to um, be there for each other and create these small projects and programs 
as where they could teach it, each other because there are a lot of refugees that are teachers or you know a lot of people with skills from back home so they gather together and uh, with the help of you know some local people they uh, rented out places they like some of the learning centers even from the community themselves they put like chip in little bits of money to fund a rent you know renting a place for uh, a few students where they could study or some people turn their own living rooms into you know a class for refugees and um, it all started, you know, really small, but now uh, overall there are about 11 learning centers in uh, in and around Jakarta where uh, refugees are going to their long waiting list even for them, and it shows that it's really not enough because uh, refugees are not allowed to study in Indonesia, not allowed to work, not allowed to do anything that requires an ID card, and we talk about it in detail in the podcast, but... Um, just to mention that there are lots of gaps and not much to do. So these people all came together to have these uh, initiatives to, you know, do something useful for themselves and their communities. And we're just out of time, but finally, Mojgan and Nicole, maybe each of you can answer where listeners can find out more about the podcast and also follow any other work that each of you are doing. So, Nicole, did you want to go first? Yeah, well, um, listeners can go to thewaitpodcast.com. That's our website, and there we've got photos and a couple of little videos and more information. Uh, there's also a page to support refugee-led initiatives, like what Mojgan's just talked about, and a couple of uh, sponsored resettlements, including one for Mojgan's family. Um, so if listeners have a little bit of extra money floating around, they can donate to some of those really, really excellent causes. Um, and, yeah, you can also find the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And leave us a rating and a review if you listen that way. But, of course, yeah, you can listen on Thursday breakfast. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and, Mojgan, what about you? Um, any other work that you're doing that you'd like to let listeners know about or where they can find out more about your organisation? Uh, the information about my organization is also on the com. On the support page, you can find a link to, you know, the website and the different programs we do. Um, our main program is Legal Aid for Refugees, but then we run a series of different programs such as uh, mental health care, physical health care, and also um, uh, even advice for, you know, resettlement. So it's been really useful for refugees throughout the years to have these sources of information. You can even find all about it on the com. Uh, I feel like this podcast is the type of story I always wanted to tell, and uh, I'm so happy that now it's in one link where I can share it with people. So I would love for people who listen to share it with others, you know, because it's the most important thing for others to know and to raise awareness about this issue. I really appreciate that. Thank you so much. Thank you both so much for joining us, and I'm sure now listeners are really looking forward to listening to the wait um, on Thursday breakfast starting from next week, the 24th of December. Uh, And that was an interview conducted by our fabulous producer, Rosie Isaacs, with Moshgan Monarifizade and Nicole Kirby. And we'll be playing the Wait um, podcast series uh, starting next week, as was just mentioned. And if you need to uh, call Lifeline, you can call them on 131114 or head over to their website at lifeline.org.au. Slavery is back. Welcome to a place where private business profits from a captive labour force, yet pennies are spent on medical services to a population in which the indigenous, the poor and the mentally ill are overrepresented. 
where isolation, humiliation and degradation are facts of life. Welcome to prison. It depends who's telling the story, I suppose. The prisoners would have one view. The people who work in the prison system would have another. And I think it's up to people to decide uh, where the truth is. Give government propaganda and the media spin doctors the flick. And check out Doin' Time for news, views and tunes on prison issues from Guantanamo Bay to Christmas Island to prisons and detention centres everywhere. Every Monday at 4pm on your community radio, 3CR. We are still fired up and we're still talking about revolution. And we're back on 3CR Thursday Breakfast. Uh, so now we're going to go to an interview with Kristen O'Connell, who's a spokesperson for the Australian Unemployed Workers Union, uh, who's joining us to give us a bit of a rundown of the big changes in social security policy in 2020. Hey, Kristen, thanks so much for joining us. Oh. Hello. Hello, can you hear me? Yeah, we can hear you now. Uh, thank Great. you so much for joining us, Kristen. And um, Thank you, Freya. Yeah, would you like to start off just by introducing yourself and telling us a bit about the Australian Unemployed Workers Union? Sure. Um, I am a volunteer with the Unemployed Workers Union. Um, we've been around for about six years advocating for the rights of people who are unemployed, stuck in the brutal welfare system um, that the government now and before now has imposed upon people who uh, need support and assistance from the government to survive when they don't have a job. Awesome. Thank you so much. And you've been doing so much work this year, obviously, you know, during the coronavirus pandemic. It's been absolutely hectic and there's been some really significant social security changes, which is why um, we ambitiously decided to try and do a bit of a rundown of, of what those have been. So I believe starting with the government's uh, very reluctant provision of the coronavirus supplement in March and kind of ending with the continuation of the cashless debit card trials last week, um, which dedicated listeners will have heard your colleague Jay Coonan discuss on Tuesday breakfast, um, you know, there have been some very large changes. So did you want to talk us through some of what you see as the most important developments in social security policy this year? And maybe perhaps we can start off with the introduction of the coronavirus supplement. So how did this come about? Who ended up getting it? Who was left behind? And do you have any recent updates? Yeah, sure. It's absolutely been a huge year. Um, we think that the government's decision to extend the coronavirus supplement to Firstly, people, people in the job seek payment, but secondly, people who are students, um, was a concession that the existing social security payments were, you know, we half the poverty line, but also um, just completely politically unacceptable. And in terms of people who are excluded, we're talking about disabled people, carers. The supplement was not extended equally across people and across groups to access welfare payments. So um, it was a really important move forward. It was huge that the government conceded it cannot continue to, people, continue to keep people on payments that are half the poverty line, but also a massive um, acceptance of discrimination against disabled people and people who are in the situation where they need those supports and were not able to access them. Yeah, and I think, you know, this this is something that 
There was a lot of media attention at at the start of the year around uh, the coronavirus supplement and then, you know, a bit of media fanfare as well about the supplement. But I think, you know, a a more uh, in-depth analysis of who did get left behind and particularly people with disabilities kind of slipped under the radar a bit. Absolutely. And so we campaigned very hard to include disabled folks with access to the disability support pension in this supplement. Um, The fact that the government failed to include people is discriminatory and the government's own human rights uh, commission or uh, inquiry found that they were lacking or failing to uphold their commitment to human rights um, in international agreements by excluding disabled people from the supplement. So it's not just disabled people, there's lots of folks who suffered from the supplement being restricted to a small group. Um, Lots of people benefited and that is excellent. Um, It meant that many people were kept or put above the Henderson poverty line, but it also wasn't universal and that's a huge problem. Yeah, definitely. And um, in terms of uh, how things have changed towards the end of the year, I know that um, there was also an equally reluctant um, extension of the supplement just for a short period of time but at a lower rate. So could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, it's incredibly important to recognise that the extension is nowhere near the rate of the initial supplement. So the initial supplement took everyone who is on an income security payment above the poverty line. And that is the first time in three-plus decades that people on welfare in Australia were above poverty line. And that is a huge deal. It meant so much, both for people individually who deserve to not live in dire poverty, but also, if you're talking about the government's priorities, the economy. So it meant that the government, by caring for people, achieved its cynical aim of caring for the economy. And we have seen since that time, the government decide that it wants to put people back into poverty. We have seen that it is not expensive for the government to put people out of poverty, and yet they have made the choice to push us further and further back into poverty. And now looking at uh, 1 April, going back to $40 a day, which is half the poverty line. Um, 1 January, we've already passed legislation that will put people far below the Henderson poverty line. So it's truly egregious that the government has felt compelled to and that they have consent um, to put people this far below the poverty line as of, you know, a couple of weeks from now. Yeah, it's absolutely appalling. And, of course, the rate hasn't been the only issue um, around Social Security payments this year because there's also been changes to mutual obligations um, during the pandemic. So starting with a belated suspension of mutual obligations for job seekers and then an announced reinstatement, which, of course, led to the Australian Unemployed Workers Union's mutual obligation strike. Um, So could you tell us a bit about that as well? Sure. So the government obviously recognised that Mutual obligations are punitive and they're pointless and uh, they've been imposing them on people for a long time to no effect. And then we've seen a doubling in the number of people who need to access welfare payments. And the government also recognised that that was not beneficial to them to understand that whilst there are no jobs, there are people who are trying to access work, who are being forced um, to do these pointless activities while they're looking for work, and no one is choosing to be unemployed. So we had a suspension of mutual obligations. At the same time, the private companies um, who profit from the taxpayer 
to impose brutal rules against uh, people who need welfare were lying to people, bullying people, forcing them to do stuff that they didn't have to do um, during the pandemic. And so we've had um, people feeling that they need to comply with what they're being told to do by companies that aren't being truthful. So we launched the strike in order to resist that oppression and to say no. We know that we don't need to do what you're saying. Um, you are lying to us and you're hurting people as a result. So the strike was a very big deal. Um, the changes to obligations were a very big deal and the pandemic gave us the opportunity to expose the pointlessness of those activities and I think we did that through the strike by empowering people to say we don't have to accept um, what job agencies are telling us and they've been lying to us the whole time, they've been bullying the whole time, but now we know um, they can do that carte blanche regardless of the rules. So, yeah, it was a very empowering moment to stand up and to say we will be on strike. Um, regardless of the lies that you're telling us. Absolutely. And I think um, just to clarify for listeners, obviously, mutual obligations is, um, you know, a, a whole set of requirements that uh, people who are receiving Social Security payments, um, particularly the job seeker payments, but also other payments have to fulfill uh, in terms of job search requirements, which is obviously untenable during the pandemic where there were a huge amount of, um, you know, cuts to jobs and a, a massive inflation of the unemployed population. Um, and so, you know, the mutual obligation strike is obviously a huge thing as well, I, I think in my eyes, because, um, uh, you know, th this really also draws attention to uh, the importance of uh, taking seriously the voices of unemployed workers as unemployed workers. Um, so, you know, the function of a union in that sense, you know, Obviously, some people may think of the Australian Unemployed Workers Union as an atypical union because you're representing unemployed workers, um, but there's still that, those sort of concerns around labour and capital that exist. Um, so moving on to, um, I guess, the, uh, the next big update of the year, we saw the emergence of the government's plan for a job maker hiring credit, which uh, we had you on the show to talk about. Um, but I was wondering if you could just quickly summarise uh, what that change was and how it works and also, you know, who does benefit from this. Absolutely. Redirected funds uh, from unemployed people who were, as we just talked about, receiving the COVID supplement, um, putting them above the poverty line from people who are unemployed to uh, business owners, to shareholders, redirecting funds to people who already had a lot of power. And, uh, you know, it's clearly been designed to undermine workers' rights, to make it harder for people, both people who are unemployed and people who are unwaged, low-waged, um, insecure workers, to have power against the companies that they work for. And so the job maker hiring credit um, has been sold as a thing that is designed to and encourage uh, unemployed or underemployed workers to find more work. Um, but it's very clear that the program itself incentivizes powerful businesses to make things harder for unemployed and underemployed people. So that is one of the reasons that we uh, campaigned very hard to change it, to make it more effective for people who access welfare payments. Um, but, yeah, it's been a huge story this year. 
So the government has sold multiple times um, programs that are not designed to help unemployed people, you know, to our benefit without any evidence that the things they are suggesting will actually help us. Yeah, absolutely. It seems like the credit here and the incentive is really to uh, those predatory job agencies um, and, yeah, the, the the private sector and also, in some cases, uh, the, the third sector or community sector um, rather than to, to unemployed workers. Um, so, finally, to round out the year, uh, the government attempted to round through a bill to make the cashless debit card trials permanent. And just for listeners who aren't familiar with the cashless debit card trials, uh, that is a form of welfare quarantining where 80% of your income is uh, quarantined onto a uh, restricted bank account. You can withdraw 20% in cash, and the government says that this is about restricting access to alcohol and other drugs. Um, but I'm sure Kristen will go into more details about how that doesn't work work and why it is a problem, but uh, what happened here and what was some of the community response? Because I know that the Australian Unemployed Workers Union was also involved in galvanizing people to push back. Of course. And so the idea of income management is based on undermining people's agency. It's patriarchal. I mean, in our context in Australia, it's racist. It's targeted towards communities that are like vastly minority majority Indigenous Australians. So we've had this program on a so-called trial now for nearly five years, and the government has attempted to make it permanent. They've been undermined by grassroots activists who've said, we know and we've seen, but all the evidence, yes, does not work. Um, And as a result, the campaign has produced an outcome that is frustrating and uh, partly disappointing, but also very important that we've prevented them from making this program permanent. Um, It takes away people's agency and decision-making capacity to determine how they spend the very limited funds they get if they are welfare recipients. So um, people who have the most constraints on their budget know how to manage their funds, and the government is trying to intervene and to say, we should decide where you put your money, and we should decide what you can spend it on. We know that the most important thing is that if there is a need for, you know, services to support people who might be suffering um, from drug abuse, alcohol abuse, uh, gambling, all of those things require social services. Mm. They don't require, like, restrictions and control over how people access and spend their funds. Um, so... We know that this doesn't work. Every piece of evidence that has come out since the so-called trial began in 2016, um, which we now know is clearly ideological um, and isn't a trial at all. The government is attempting to impose this upon the communities that they've Mm. targeted, who are majority first people's communities, so that they can find a justification to roll it out across the 1.4 plus million people who are currently Social Security um, recipients in unemployment payments. Um, you know, it's egregious what's happening now. We're extremely worried about what will happen in the future. And it's very clear that the idea is not to prove that this is successful or unsuccessful, but to do something that benefits the donors to the government. Um, Absolutely. You know, benefits from. Um, so just to, just to wrap up, um, because... Um, 
you know, just to wrap up on a hopeful note, um, how do we maintain and build some momentum in 2021, and where can people follow the work of the Australian Unemployed Workers Union? Yeah, so we're really active on social media. Um, find us on Twitter at Aussie Unemployment. Um, look for the Unemployed Workers Union on Facebook. Um, but more importantly, like coming up, we are expecting an election year. Um, we have just seen um, the government force through a piece of legislation that has continued the oppression of people in the communities who are the trial communities, that again are majority first people communities, um, that is going to continue for two years. And that is an incredibly important piece of legislation we must defeat. Mm. So that's going to involve grassroots activism across the country, particularly in the trial sites. We need to all be ready to resist and to campaign against the MPs that allow that to happen. Um, that particularly includes selling Griff, somebody called Griff the Grifter in South Australia, but it also includes all of the MPs across the country who are complicit in this system, um, and we would encourage everyone both to sign up to the union as a member um, and also to look at what's happening with their local uh, electorate to call their MP talk about income management and talk about welfare more broadly and to make sure that MPs understand in the federal election that's coming up, um, this is an important issue for everyone and there is a growing and growing number mm. of unemployed people, which is very disappointing, um, but this is going to be crucial. Income management is not just about the small number of communities that are currently affected. It is going to be expanded. Absolutely. Um, it's going to affect everyone in welfare. Absolutely. And thank you so much for running that down. Uh, I encourage people to check out the unemployed, uh, Australian Unemployed Workers Union online. And Kristen, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. Thank you, Priya. So that was an interview with Kristen O'Connell, who's a spokesperson for the Australian Unemployed Workers Union, who gave us a rundown of some of the big changes in social security policy in 2020. Hi, everyone. My name's Robbie Thorpe. I'm with 3CR Community Radio. Every year we have a subscription drive. It's a way of supporting our organisation maintain itself through the year and we rely on the support of the, the community. One way to do that is to subscribe and become a member. Become part of this organisation itself. Get in contact with 3CR. You can go to the website 3cr.org.au or you can ring on 94198377. 3CR ensures that our voices, Aboriginal voices, are heard on this radio station. So it's a good way of supporting Aboriginal people as well by becoming a subscriber for 3CR Community Radio. Um, and next up we have Shakira Hussain, who is a writer and researcher based at the University of Melbourne. And she's also the author of From Victims to Suspects, Muslim Women Since 9-11. And she's joining us to discuss two of her recent articles, one in the Saturday paper and one for the other film festival. Good morning, Shakira. Morning, Sherazah. And I'll just start off by adding, I actually had a third one come through this week too, but because it had been so long in the pipeline, I'd forgotten ever doing it. It's, an in, it's a transcript of an in-conversation that I did with my friends uh, Eugenia Flynn and Amir Rahman on um, relationships and alliances and or, you know, between Aboriginal and Asian people, and that was published in Pursuit. No, not Pursuit, in Peril, sorry. 
we'll, we'll have to. Um, I remember you actually told me about this yesterday. Sorry, I forgot to mention it as well. Um, but yeah, firstly, could you just tell us a little bit about um, the work that you do? Okay. Well, my main area of research is issues around Muslim gender violence and racism, but other topics you know, um, that I write about, you know, they're, they're all kind of um, hooked into each other in, in lots of ways. But I'm also increasingly writing about disability for... Um, that started out with disability writing being for, like, self multiple cirrhosis, you know, um, so I might as well, um, which initially when I was diagnosed, I thought this is the one crap thing that's never happened to me that I have no interest in writing about, but um, that phase passed. And partly I have to say through the work of some really cool disabled writers and artists in Melbourne is a good location for that. Um, so in your recent uh, Christ, uh, article for the Saturday paper, which was just published this Saturday uh, past, uh, you mentioned there is a, I'm just going to quote from what you wrote, uh, there needs to be a moment of reckoning that the man behind the Christchurch massacre is an Australian. He was born here and it was in this country that his hatred and racism developed at a young age. Could you expand on that a little bit, please? The reason for publishing that article at this time was the release of the Royal Commission, the New Zealand Royal Commission report into the Christchurch massacre. And you could really blink and miss it that that happened this, um, you know, past week in the Australian media. There's been scarcely any coverage at all. You would think that I expected that it would be the lead story or close to the lead story. Of course, the pandemic has kind of tended to overshadow everything else this year, but there haven't been any huge like um, news stories to do with that this week. It's been not exactly a slow news week, but a quieter news week than other previous ones. And yet this was, you know, um, just not given an appropriate amount of attention at all. And this moment of reckoning that I mentioned in that paragraph, you know, Australia seems to be willing to postpone that indefinitely. Um, and I guess, could you speak more about the, the lack of coverage in the Australian media uh, relating to this, as opposed to the, um, the the reverse when the attack happened? Yeah. Yes, you need to be careful what you wish for, because of course there was a lot of coverage immediately after the attack, but it was um, not coverage that was well, useful or productive. Um, the New Yorker actually ran an article about how to write about the Churchill um, massacre and its headline was the need for um, more light, less oxygen. And so, but what the, a lot of the Australian media coverage did was just provide the far right with a lot of oxygen and not much light. You know, as in it didn't tell us much useful information about you know, the factors that were leading to this event, but it was giving a lot of oxygen to their opinions. It was giving a lot of um, material that could be used, you know, to, to to glorify the killer. 
you know, um, like, well, his image over and over again and his name over and over again and details about his background that have the effect of, you know, not exactly, you know, not, not doing anything to, um, you, to explain the source of his hate, but they just kind of humanized him, you know, um, and for those who were inclined to, to, uh, sympathize with his worldview, there was, you know, to, to say, oh, well, you can see what, where he's coming from then, you know. And, um, and then on top of that, I would say probably the worst piece of, of, um, of coverage of all of that was the coverage of Fraser Annings, you know, Senator Fraser Annings, so we can't pretend he doesn't exist whatsoever, um, who, who said that the massacre was the result of Muslim immigration. Well, in a literal sense, that's true. If there hadn't been any Muslims in New Zealand, there wouldn't have been anyone for the killer to kill. There would have been no mosque, you know, um, for him to 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 go out and to choose as his killing field. But you know, well, okay, that's our fault for being born. Then really, we were just asking to be killed the moment we drew breath in this world. And um, okay, so and then. Uh, but Fraser Anning didn't only post that on Twitter. He was given space to repeat it at, on Carl and Jackie O. And they did push back against it in any meaningful way. And I don't really see that even if they tried to. But, like, to, to give that particular toxic bullshit oxygen and, you know, and a platform, I think, is just not fixable. Mm. Um, and you also mentioned, um, I don't know if it was in your article or in the interview you did uh, for the Saturday paper podcast 7am, um, but you mentioned the sort of, um, I guess, differences between uh, Australia, uh, so-called, and uh, um, New Zealand, uh, with people mentioning that Australia is so racist um, and uh, the levels of racism that uh, we sort of take for everyday um, occurrence doesn't is not an everyday occurrence in like the media landscape in New Zealand could you speak more to that okay. um, I am wary of New Zealand Australians when we talk about New Zealand could be like people from the United States when they talk about Canada. Yeah, that know, was really not meant that, to be like that as well. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 no, that would not have been your intention. They, we're, they're both like settler colonial countries. They're both, you know, white supremacy and, and so on. But, yeah, but having travelled to, not to Christchurch, to Wellington in the reasonably immediate aftermath of the attack and speaking with Muslims, who lived in, and, and in speaking with Muslims who lived in both New Zealand and Australia, here too, they would say, oh, look, New Zealand is bad, like as bad as in Australia. And one factor that people would pick out was the Murdoch media here, which, and, um, which is not nearly as, as ubiquitous in New Zealand, and the role of the Murdoch media in fueling racism and Islamophobia in Australia, and um, and the um, 
the types of views that were routinely aired in the Murdoch media here. And like the Christchurch massacre, went into the dark went to find, you know, um, the Nazi supremacist material he sourced from the globe. Um, so his manifesto was named after a, a far-right text from France, The Great Replacement, um, which is the idea that white people are being literally replaced by lesser creatures, Muslims primarily. But he, like, as a... As he went looking for the hard stuff. He already got the soft, soft stuff just in the air that we breathe in Australia, in the mainstream media and in Parliament. Um, and you, yeah, and you, you don't have to go out of your way to um, to get radicalised in Australia. Really, I don't believe if you're that way inclined, you know, you can just. Um, tune into what gets said in the Australian Senate, for example. Or you can um or or, or you can switch on to Sky After Dark. <laughs> um and so you sort of mentioned the um the manifesto and he also says that um he is an eco fascist. Uh and that kind of links in quite um well, for lack of a better word, to the recent article that you published for the Other Film Festival. Um, could you talk a little bit about that? Yes, of course. And I would really uh, like to, I would really encourage people to look at the other work that was published as part of that, as part of a festival called Two Degrees, which is themed around disability and climate change, the particular impact that, um, that I'm an emergency is having on disabled lives, but and my essay was on ecofascism, climate change, and disability. And a lot of people, the first time they would have heard the term ecofascism, was when Christchurch killer described himself in his manifesto as an ecofascist. And you know, there was a widespread WTF about that. But not sorry, it's not eco. Yeah, so you know, ecofascism. Um, because people think of ecology as being like that's uh, left wing greenies and um, and fascists, obviously that's Fraser Anning and Hitler. But um, and, and they're just two words that don't belong together. But actually, ecofascism has a very long history, and there were just elements. In the very, from the very outset in the ecology movement in the in the 19th century, because ecology had a real strict social Darwinism, and uh, you know, and the ecology of the broader environment was kind of you know also able to be about human societies that that um, different races belong to where they had naturally occurred and should mix and should be like interbreeding and all those sort and that some were superior others and then when and the, the Nazis you know also had a, a strong pseudo I will say um, because they were quite prepared to like 
um, lay waste to it in the interest of you know, um, you know Aryan superiority, but you know a, a to environmentalism, pseudo environmentalism. As I said, you know they love the German forest, absolutely amazing. Um, you know the to sound tropping the bestest forest in the world, and we'll 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 invade a few other countries because they've got forests that really should be German forests rather than Polish forests, that kind of thing. And um, and so and um, yeah, and but the uh, uh, environmental like it's 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 uh, has to be alert to both. Infiltration by the far right under the guise of the eco-fascist trends within its own thinking, and the pandemic really um, highlighted this because um, there, there was a temptation to see the um, to, to look to the bright side of COVID-19 and to um, have all these stories about, which turned, a lot of which turned out to be fake news anyhow, like, oh, there's swans, you know, swimming in the canals of, of Venice and there's, um, you know, and, 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 and there's hardly any planes in the sky. Well, that wasn't fake news. But, and, you know, there's, there's less movement of people. And also it's just, People in general in overpopulation that are driving climate change, and there was a little often unspoken, but mostly unspoken, but sometimes spoken that well, if we have, if it's going to lessen the global population, well, that's really sad for all concerned, but you know, for the future of the planet, you know, well, less humans is going to be good for the rest of the species, is not. But that overlooks that. It's only 1% of the population that is driving climate change. You know, um, there was a moment early on in the pandemic where it had this sort of the rich moment because it was the people who could afford to be on plays and, and, and politicians too who were all attending summits and meeting each other and, and then getting and transmitting COVID-19 to each other. Um, I remember, you know, when I was... Considering how to, you know, um, be careful for my own movements and likely exposure. And a friend said, who studies, an academic who studies China, was saying, look, it was, uh, for the moment, initially, it was the top officials of the Chinese Communist Party who were getting infected with COVID-19 because, yeah, they belonged to them and they were, and then in Iran, it was the top officials and who were getting infected and, and dying but it is going to and so here it's you, you take a look at and, and they'd had to book a flight themselves um just from melbourne to sydney and they said we took we we took tiger but if you look at all the flights that affected it's like Qantas, 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 not jetstar it's not tiger and you look at all this and i'm keeping my kids i'm not i thought that they might have it's going to be the private schools and yeah and remember early on it was like custom ski trips and it was private school private school private school but then of course it was the um and worldwide it's been black indigenous and 
migrant communities that have died in the largest numbers, you know, um, because they, those communities couldn't afford to stop working, couldn't afford to self-isolate, didn't have, you know, nice big houses with large gardens to which they could retreat and have all their food and, and, um, and, you know, uh, essential glued to them. Um, there was a point in there somewhere. I think I might have forgotten what it was. <laughs> Eat the Rich was probably the point. Sorry? Eat the Rich. Eat the Rich was probably the point. <laughs> and, and I guess, yeah. They don't taste you... so good. Oh, so, sorry, go. They don't taste so good. It's kind of rancid. <laughs> and Shakira. Um, oh, yeah, I guess you, you were also talking about um, the article um, uh, that you published uh, called Surviving Climate Change and Ecofascism. Um, and you mentioned the Black Summer bushfires and the COVID-19. Um, but you also you also mentioned that um, uh, people with disabilities die in um, disproportionate numbers during emergencies because uh, uh, they're excluded from disaster response planning. Um, I don't, we've only got about two minutes left, but did you, did you want to speak uh, more to, to that and the contents of that? Specific angle. Yeah. If people look at the Two Degrees Other Film Festival website, there's an, another essay that talks specifically to that of disabled people talking about the um, trouble that they had in, for example, getting the NDIS to cover um, certain measures, you know, like like blackout lines, like air, air conditioning, that would have made the Black Summer not just tolerable but survivable for them, but you know, oh, no, you don't need that. Um, that's not related to your disability. That's just, you know, um, that, that's just because, you know, people like air conditioning. Um, but, yeah, um, and so, like, um, so there's a latent ableism involved in that disabled people are not included in emergency planning and emergency responses. And we die in disproportionate number because, well, getting physical access to, um, to like, emergency evacuation is that's not something that's factored in. And, like, we're dependent on various types of assistive devices, wheelchairs, um, and, um, and... Yeah, and it, accessible information, you know, like just having sign language interpreters on the television when plans are being you know, broadcast, for example. There's, that's not historically been included or budgeted for. And so, you know, we don't know where the evacuation centre is. There's no means available for us to get there, even if we did. And, um, and so it's... Um, yeah, so so um so active eco fascism that actually, you know, going out and physically murdering people, you know, that that is you know, they that they can afford to be lazy about that. They can just let this ableism within the system do that job for them. Mm. But um, but at the same time sure, there has um... been a rise in active eco fascism as well and I Worried that disabled people might become targets for mass killings, as we've seen so far, most notably, and it's a one that doesn't get enough 
um, attention as in the Satagaha Keihai massacre in Japan a few years ago. Mm. Mm. Um, and here, that's all we have time for uh, today. Uh, but if listeners want to read any of the articles, they can head over to the Saturday paper or theotherfilmfestival.com. Um, and it's called Surviving Climate Change and Ecofascism. Thank you so much for joining us today, Shakira. Um, thanks for having me, Sarah. Um, and that was Shakira Hussain, who is a writer and researcher based at the University of Melbourne. Um, and if listeners would like to speak to someone on Lifeline, uh, to speak to someone, they can speak to Lifeline and you can call them on 131114 or head over to their website, lifeline.org.au. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855 AM. Visit the 3CR website at 3cr.org.au forward slash podcast to hear the most recent recording from each show or 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming to listen live. And we're back on 3CR Thursday Breakfast. Um, so now we're going to actually wait before I do that. Um, just quickly reminding people uh who uh, were listening earlier, we talked about the Mantra Hotel uh, refugees being detained there and Border Forces plans to move them, so please head down if you can. Um, any little amount of time helps. Um, any time during the day, just try and head down for a couple of hours. Show some solidarity, show some support. Let the men know that you care and that you're there. Um, and, yeah. Um, but now we're going to go to an interview with uh, Joshua Badge, who's a career writer and philosopher living on Wurundjeri land in Melbourne, who joins us to discuss and contextualize the most recent spate of queer and transphobic articles in Australian media. So, Joshua, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. Not at all. Thank you so much for having me. So, um, just before we jump into this, um, do you want to uh, self-introduce and tell us a bit about who you are and what you do? Yeah, sure. So my name is Joshua Badge, like you said. Um, I, I'm a freelance writer, and my writing is featured in places like Mianjin, Noveland, Guardian, Junkie, and so on. Um, uh, I previously lectured at Deakin University, and I currently volunteer with Dawn Harper Health um, on a bunch of uh, human rights uh, working groups, um, and also with the Renters and Housing Union. Yeah, and you've also been an absolutely staunch advocate online, um, pushing back against queerphobic and transphobic media. And um, you know, I guess over the past over the past week, uh, we saw at least two transphobic articles in the Sydney Morning Herald and the Age. But then we, we also discussed this prior to the interview, and there was that other uh, article about conversion therapy, I believe, as well. Um, so maybe. Just to, to let listeners who aren't so familiar with this issue know, uh, why were these so concerning? What is the issue with pieces like these getting media attention in mastheads like the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age? Yeah, so I, I guess to cut a long story short, it's simply because, you know, coverage of issues which affects queer people's lives affects our safety, our well-being, and our standing in society. So, you know, we, we uh, talk a lot about the rates of suicide in our communities, and that's definitely an issue. Um, but it's also sometimes looking at it in the wrong direction. The issue isn't with us. We are not the problem. It is that, you know, a hostile world drives people to poor mental health outcomes. Um, and, you know, kind of on top of that, if straight and cis people are only reading about how we're, you know, a threat to children or taking away people's rights, 
then they're going to treat us as enemies in their everyday life, which encourages discrimination or in the extreme violence. You know, when you put people's rights up for debate, it licenses other people to mistreat them. So this kind of misleading and dishonest media coverage really makes the world unsafe for trans and queer people. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, um, you know, there's been... There's been a lot of really cynical response uh, in the media uh, being like, you know, why can't we debate these issues, you know, and and um, accusing people of, of quote unquote cancelling them for mm. not uh, for, for not um, not willing to put up with um, statements that effectively um, leave people's lives and identities um, up for debate. So. Um, mm. I know that uh, yourself and, and others raised some complaints about these uh, about these articles. So I was just wondering um, if you could go through how uh, these mastheads responded and um, mm. what what some of your concerns are about the response. Oh, big question. Um, so how did they respond? I guess in a word, poorly. Um, so the editors made it fairly clear on social media um, on the day and then in the following days after the first article went up um, that they didn't really understand the issue or what they'd done wrong. Um, you know, one of the editors even suggested that it wasn't so much of an issue because they hadn't published it in the paper in Melbourne. Um, they'd just done it online. But obviously these stories get syndicated across news platforms, so... You know, it appeared in Victoria, it appeared in Queensland and in, in WA, and, you know, it was online. So, you know, everyone could read it. Um, they ended up removing the article from the Melbourne website but keeping it up on the Sydney website, which just really goes to show how confused they are as an organisation about how to cover, uh, you know, issues that affect queer people in um, sensitive and accurate ways. Um, in terms of consistent other response, a, a lot could go wrong. Uh, you know, their instinct was to publish, uh, you know, the, the opposite side of the de debate by um, putting a, a, a queer-friendly voice uh, in the paper a few days later. But that really doesn't make amends for the error. You know, getting trans and queer people to publish in their paper while, you know, simultaneously platforming um, queer phobes is really just a PR move to whitewash their unethical conduct. And going forward, you know, they might not change their policies or practices at all, or they might only make minor and ineffective changes. You know, this is a very uh, broad, you know, it's not just one or two or three pieces. It's, it's, it's many pieces um, in news and opinion going back several years. And so what's really needed is a, a, a systemic response. You know, this was a flashpoint, but it's not just this, these one or two articles this week. Absolutely. And I was pretty pretty appalled by, uh, you know, seeing, I, I know that there was at least one uh, trans writer who had published, I think prior to these articles coming out, had published an article um, in one of these papers, and there was a response um, that because they had because they had published that, they were somehow, you know, able to play both sides, and obviously this is not a both sides type of issue. This is, um, uh, this is you know, representation on the one hand versus vilifying people's lives on the other hand, which I think um, is, is a little... Um, a little more uh, serious than just trying to present both sides of the debate. So um, maybe uh, we can go into a bit of a discussion about standards for opinion pieces and reporting more generally. So how do these pieces potentially contravene the Australian Press Council standards of practice principles? Um, and are um, Australian mastheads bound by these principles in any tangible sense? Um, so in theory, and I premise this with in theory, uh, news 
media, print media, um, it, and, 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 and digital news is bound by um, certain rules, uh, you know, things like you know, remaining factual um, or not causing undue offence. Um, however, you know, these rules get bent and broken all the time. And as far as opinion pieces go, it's basically the Wild West. You know, you can say just about anything and get away with it so long as it gets past the editor. And that's really one of the issues here is that, you know, most editors wouldn't platform a climate denier or an anti-vaxxer or someone who wanted to defend marital rape in 2020, but they'll, you know, very clearly platform transphobes and homophobes um, because they, they might share those prejudices or they might be overcompensating so that their paper looks neutral or they're just, you know, and I think this is probably the most likely uh, option, but they're just simply ignorant of the facts of the matter. Um, and so, you know, do, do these kind of pieces contravene the Australian Press Council standards? On a reasonable reading, probably. Um, but the thing that a lot of people might not realise is that the Australian Press Council is both funded by and staffed by the paper that it's supposed to keep in line. So on the one hand, they can't really come down too hard on them because then they risk those newspapers just pulling their funding, um, as News Corp has done in the past. And on the other hand, they're probably not going to be very critical of their friends and colleagues. You know, so the Australian, for example, published an op-ed earlier this year comparing trans kids to COVID, uh, both in the, in the headline and in the body of the piece. You know, that's obviously extremely unreasonable and just a, a horrible thing to do. But the APC ruled that it was in the public interest. And, you know, incidentally, News Corp just happens to be the biggest funder of the APC and News Corp journals sit on the adjudication panel. So there's this appearance of regulation that really most news out outlets, you know, and forgive my language, but why they're asking with these rules every week. Yeah, absolutely. And it's just, you know, I mean... Over, over the last year, seeing um, particularly the Australian come out with a dedicated page uh, to vilify trans people has been pretty difficult uh, to stomach considering how much airtime uh, this gets. Um, but maybe to wrap up, what can people do if, I, if they identify pieces like these? Um, and uh, where can people find out maybe about more of your work? Yeah, sure. Um, so, uh, you know, it can be very effective to email a news outlet directly. You know, um, above all else, <laughs> journalists and editors are sensitive to the suggestion that they are biased in some way. Um, so emailing and calling the most senior editors of a paper, you know, going to the people with the actual power to change things um, can be an effective strategy. Be polite, but be direct and make it personal. You know, if you're queer and an article is anti-queer, explain that it hurts you and your community. If there are errors, and there always are in these pieces, explain that it's factually incorrect. You know, this just is not the case. Um, if the other thing you can do, if something is especially egregious, you know, especially defamatory or just, you know, a straight-up lie, you can also lodge a complaint with the Australian Press Council. And I know this sounds strange because I've just explained why they're basically useless. However, this accomplishes a few things. If the APC gets lots of complaints, then that puts pressure on them and at the same time exposes how toothless they are. You know, they're not an effective watchdog. They're not an effective media regulator. So in the short term, it creates pressure on them to actually do something. In the longer term, we can also use this inefficacy to push for meaningful media regulation. You know, television and radio are regulated by 
independent government authorities and, and, and by, by statute, by laws. Uh, and, you know, they get by just fine without any undue in- interference. So, you know, why is print and, and digital news media special? You know, why should they uh, keep get to acting as if, you know, there's no rules on, on what they can say on issues like climate change and trans rights? So, you know, uh, you know, reach out to the editors of these papers and consider lodging a complaint with the APC, uh, APC if you see these kind of stories. Absolutely. And, um, yeah, so we're just about to finish, but uh, just to assuage some concerned posters on Twitter, Joshua, what is a queer philosopher? <laughs> yes, so, um, uh, you know, uh, a queer philosopher is someone who is a queer person and also happens to be a philosopher. <laughs> um, I, I think that uh, some, some people online mislead, misread that as, um, you know, uh, you know uh, I'm out there indoctrinating students. There are branches of philosophy um, that are, are queer. You know, queer theory is, is a is an extremely um, diverse and multidisciplinary um, field that it, it covers quite a lot of philosophy. Um, but you know, the short answer to that is, you know, just a person who does philosophy. <laughs> Incredible. Um, well, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us, Joshua. Um, really appreciate you breaking this down, and I hope that people will take those tips um, in hand and use them to to combat any of this vilification in future. No worries. Me too, and thanks so much for having me. That was an interview with Joshua Badge, who's a queer writer and philosopher living on Wurundjeri land in Melbourne, who joined us to discuss and contextualize the most recent spate of queer and transphobic articles in Australian media. So, here you are, too foreign for home, too foreign for here, never enough for both. Ijuoma umebinyo. What makes you smile and adds a spring to your step? What does it mean to belong? And how do we build a home away from home? Diaspora Blues is a show that contemplates what is and what could be. Join Busto and Bigwa every Monday at 2.30 on 3CR Community Radio. Produced by Yan. And we're back on 3CR Thursday Breakfast. Now, um, as people that are listening in Melbourne, but also further beyond, um, may be familiar with the trans community, um, the the community in general um, lost a a real powerful, wonderful, um, beautiful figure, uh, Bridget Flack, over the past few weeks. And um, her loss is really being felt um, among the community. It's been um, a really big blow, and a lot of people are missing her right now. And um, you know, prior to um, prior to losing Bridget, uh, she did mention to friends that um, if anything happened to her, she wanted her writing to be shared with the world. And in that spirit, um, we've pulled a piece from. Bridget's WordPress, which is things I don't really mean.wordpress.com, and I'm going to read the piece No Flowers. This is by Bridget Flack. All of the streets around here are no standing zones. These pavements belong to the quick, and you move too slowly to follow. You slink along with a chaplet of roses about your orange hair, a sunset, a sunset kaleidoscope visible only in flashes as I rush past. 
Today, I turned onto an unfamiliar street to find it empty and unhurried. Beyond the fibro houses, in among the scrub, I watched a ball of fire gently burning. I followed at a tiptoe and lay down in that place until I was alone again. I'm coming home with a flower tucked discreetly behind my ear. Vale, Bridget Flack, thank you so much for all that you did for our community, and we will always remember you. Um, for people that have been uh, experiencing distress about uh, Bridget's loss, please feel free to contact QLife on 1-800-184-527, and you can also always contact Lifeline on 131114. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855am. Visit the 3CR website at 3cr.org.au forward slash podcast to hear the most recent recording from each show or 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming to listen live. And that's all we have time for uh, this week and this year. This is the end of Thursday Breakfast Live Shows for 2020. But don't worry, we will be back in a couple of weeks in 2021. Um, so we'll just take you through what we uh, what we covered today. Shahrazad, do you want to kick it off? Uh, yeah, sure. So uh, firstly, we uh, heard a conversation that our producer had with uh, the weight co-host. So uh, that was Moshgan Mora Fisade and Nicole Kirby. And The Wait is a new five-part narrative podcast series telling the story of the refugees stranded in Indonesia as a result of Australia's border crackdown. And we'll be playing that series starting next week over the summer. After that, I spoke with Kristen O'Connell, who's a spokesperson for the Australian Unemployed Workers Union, who gave us a rundown of some of the big changes in social security policy in 2020. And then we had a conversation with Shakira Hussain, who is a writer and researcher based at the University of Melbourne. And she joined us to discuss two of her recent articles, one in the Saturday paper, The Christchurch Massacre, an Australian Crime, and the other was on ecofascism and disability, published for the Other Film Festival, Two Degrees. And finally, Joshua Badge, a queer writer and philosopher living on Wurundjeri land in Melbourne, joined us to discuss and contextualise the most recent state of queer and transphobic articles in Australian media. So that's all we've got time for. Um, thank you so much for joining us throughout the year, for putting up with all the technical difficulties. Um, <laughs> we will definitely be in studio for the whole of next year, fingers mm-hmm. crossed. And you can still, yeah, listen to the program over summer because we'll be playing the wait as well as some episodes of liberation loops awesome well goodbye carly goodbye shahrazad goodbye see you in 2021 3cr breakfast would like to thank the new international bookshop melbourne's radical independent bookseller and venue for their financial support of this program you can find nibs in the basement of trades hall in victoria street carlton or check them out at nibs.org.au to find more information about upcoming discussions and events.